Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Language podcast. Today I'm talking to Anne Curzon about her book, Fixing English, Prescriptivism and Language History. In this interview, we discuss the place of prescriptivism in telling the story of the English language, as well as the many guises that prescriptivism can take. From gender-neutral language reform to the red and green squiggly lines that Microsoft Word shows millions of users every day. I'm talking to Professor Anne Curzon of the University of Michigan about her new book, Fixing English. Anne, the book's about linguistic prescriptivism. What is prescriptivism, according to you? So prescriptivism is people telling other people how they should and should not use the language. And there are people who give it other names. Deborah Cameron has called it verbal hygiene, which is the desire to control or clean up the language. And she makes the important argument that as soon as you have speakers together in a community, you will have some speakers telling other speakers how to use the language. And my work builds on her work to a great extent. And I decided to continue to use the word prescriptivism as a way to talk about this kind of regulation of language because it's such a common term in linguistics. Uh, So I decided to keep that term. And I'm really interested in how it works in the history of the language. And what prompted you to write this book in particular? This book was several years in the making, and it took me a while to see that the multiple projects I was working on were all related to the history of prescriptivism. So I was working on non-sexist language change, the attempts that have been made to create more generic terms like chair rather than chairman, or using singular they rather than singular he. I was also working on a project about dictionaries, I was working on a project about reappropriation. So when groups take back negative terms and try to use them in a more positive way for their own community. And at some point I realized that these were all linked by a common thread, which was, this was all about the regulation of language. This was all about prescriptivism and that what I was interested in at a more fundamental level was how does this affect the history of the language? Thank you. From my perspective, there's a sort of theme running through linguistics of the clash between prescriptivism and descriptivism. And as academic linguists with a basically descriptive orientation, the tendency is, I think, to paint prescriptivists as being the bad guys. Do you think that's a fair characterization of of the situation? I think it is a fair characterization, and it's one that I address in the book, because I think that actually, as linguists, we're doing a disservice to the study of the language to dismiss prescriptivists and prescriptivism as quickly and easily as we tend to do. So you're absolutely right. There's a narrative, which is that there is language change and that happens in the language. It's inevitable and natural, which I completely agree with. And there are these prescriptivists over there who are trying to stop language change, tell us what we should and shouldn't do. And they are being very silly And they can't stop language change. And so what they're doing has no effect. And I think it's that conclusion where we get into some trouble because while prescriptivists are certainly not going to stop language change, 
they may affect language change. And that seems to me then to lead to a very interesting question for those of us who study the history of the language, which is what effect do they have? One of the analogies that I use in the book that has been helpful for me is of language as a river. And I I recognize that anytime we make an analogy of language and compare it to something, we've already got a problem because you've taken the speakers out of it and you're dealing with language as if it didn't have speakers. But in any case, I think this is helpful, which is if language is a river, and I think linguists have often set up prescriptivism as if prescriptivists are trying to build a dam to stop the river, and the river's just going to run right over the dam, and so the prescriptivists have failed. And my point is, but just building the dam affects the flow of the river. Even if the river flows over the dam, it's now flowing in a different way because the dam was built. And we could think about building break walls and embankments and all the things that they're not going to stop the river, but they may steer the river in particular directions. And that's what I'm interested in figuring out. Right. So even if, as I think most linguists believe, prescriptivism isn't successful in doing what it's aiming to do, it can still have interesting effects on the history of the language. Exactly. And I think we also need to look carefully at the aims of prescriptivism because I'm not actually sure that all prescriptivists are trying to stop language change. Some prescriptivists are trying to bring back older forms. Some of them are trying to make us use a high style, that they are dictating what is high style and what is not high style. So again, what I realized as I was working on the book was that prescriptivism itself is more complicated than linguists have often framed it to be. I think there are multiple strands of prescriptivism, and it helps us to untangle those. That leads very nicely into my next question, which is, this is something that you spend some time in the book discussing. What are these strands of prescriptivism? Could you lay those out for us? Sure. So I, what I came up with as a model was that to disentangle four strands of prescriptive rules about language. And I think that if we disentangle those, it helps us talk about prescriptivism and think about its power and how we might want to address it in really useful ways. So let me start by just naming the four strands, and then I'll explain each one. So the first strand is standardizing prescriptivism, which tries to distinguish what is standard usage from what's not standard usage. The second is stylistic prescriptivism, and that is trying to distinguish stylistic issues, what is higher formal style from what is not. The third is restorative prescriptivism, which is trying to restore older forms back into the language. And the fourth is politically responsive prescriptivism, which often gets left out of conversations about prescriptivism because sometimes it's a kind of prescriptivism that linguists support or agree with, but certainly is a kind of prescriptivism. So let me provide a few more details about those. The The standardizing prescriptivism is, I think, so naturalized for us that often it doesn't even get included in style guides. So this would be things like the prescriptions about ain't as being non-standard. Well, that is now seen as so common sense for a lot of speakers that if you look in common style guides, you won't even find it because people say, why would you need to include a rule on that? Because sort of everybody knows that. The second set, which is stylistic prescriptivism, 
is the set that often gets invoked when linguists are talking about prescriptivism. And this would be the things like don't split an infinitive, don't end a sentence with a preposition. These rules about style, about what makes good writing, they're often about writing. And what I'm struck by with these, and it's why I want to make a distinction, is that frankly, if you split an infinitive or don't split an infinitive, if you end a sentence with a preposition or not, I think most speakers would consider that all standard usage. They're not going to say it's not standard to split an infinitive. They may say it's not good writing or it's not high style, but it's not that it's not standard. And therefore, I think the stakes in terms of how you may get judged are different in terms of using a non-standard form or using a form that doesn't adhere to these stylistic prescriptive rules. Then there was this third category that took a while for me to figure out because it's small, but these are rules where people are trying to bring back an older use. And a very good example of this is the prescription that's happening right now around the word nauseous. Now, what does nauseous mean for you? Nauseous means I, I feel sick. I feel like I'm about to be sick. Exactly. And that's what it means for me. It's, it's how we feel when we're about to be ill. Now, you can still go into prescriptive style guides and find people saying that we all have it wrong and that nauseous should mean what it historically meant, which is causing nausea, and that when we feel sick, we should say, I'm nauseated. Well, now that's all well and good, but that's not actually what we say. In these style guides, they will say things like, the correct use is, the roller coaster is nauseous. And I think... Anybody who said that would get laughed at because that's a ridiculous thing to say. Uh, So this set of rules, which is trying to bring back these older forms, why I felt I needed to distinguish those was that what they're prescribing actually is not standard, nor is it high style. If you actually use those, you would be marginalized for that use. So I needed to create a small category for those. And then the fourth category of the politically responsive prescriptivism Uh, these would be things like non-sexist language reform. These are very conscious language reforms, often to make the language more equal, more judicious, more inclusive, often ones that are supported by scholars in the academy, but highly prescriptive impulses here about how to use the language in more equal, fair, or judicious ways. Now, I put this model out there, and I have to say I hope people will try applying it We'll nuance it. We'll find if there are other categories that needed to get added. I thought I'll take a first shot at trying to disentangle everything we're talking about when we're talking about prescriptivism, and I hope other people will make the model better. Just picking up on that final strand then, it might come as a shock to some people who are used to thinking of prescriptivists as these kind of aging white males who lay down rules in institutional contexts. It might come as a shock to put those sort of villains of the story in the same category as the people who are doing non-sexist language reform. What is it that the two endeavors have in common? I think the first thing I want to say is I think what's important about it is to stop making people villains around this. Uh, And again, this is where Deborah Cameron's work has been so helpful for me, where she said this impulse, this impulse to regulate language is a natural part of speech communities. And to not demonize that, to deal with it actually as part of language use and language communities, so that if you are a descriptive linguist, you need to think about this impulse as part of describing a language community, that you need to not dismiss it. 
Ed Finnegan at University of Southern California has also been a pioneer in putting this argument out there. And in terms of calling out linguists for saying, you know, when the Linguistic Society of America puts out guidelines for non-sexist language use, that is prescriptive. And we need to recognize that that is prescriptive. Now, I think Deborah Cameron really usefully in her book, what she says to us is it's not helpful to ask, should we prescribe? What is more helpful to ask is who prescribes for whom on what grounds toward what ends. So in other words, we need to be descriptive about prescriptivism rather than prescriptive about prescriptivism. That's exactly right. And Deborah Cameron calls us out for it. She says, when descriptive linguists tell prescriptive linguists that they're being silly and that it's much better to think about language in descriptive ways, that is a completely prescriptive move. Mm. Say, we're thinking about language in better ways. Now, I think we are certainly thinking about language in what we would call more linguistically informed ways based on what we know from the science of language. But that's where her question of let's think about this as who prescribes for whom on what grounds toward what ends. That seems to be a much more helpful question. Coming back to non-sexist language reform then, how successful would you say that's been? Shockingly successful. Really shockingly successful. And this was what was fun about the research for that chapter in the book, was to see how a conscious attempt to change the language can actually succeed. Because changing the language consciously is enormously difficult. Telling speakers to change what they do on a daily basis and to have them actually change it is rare. And in this case, to do things like ask them to change pronoun use. So when I went into the project, I was looking at a quote from Robin Lakoff, who's one of the pioneers in language and gender research. And in 1975, in her book, Language and Woman's Place, she has a quote where she talks about the efforts to change the singular generic he. So this would be in a sentence like, a professor should learn his students' names, where this could be a professor of, you know, male, female, but you use the he as a generic. And in the 1970s, there were the beginnings of efforts to change that construction. And she said, I hear the concern, but I just don't think we should focus our energies here because you can't change this. So that's 1975. And at this point, if you look in pretty much any style guide for usage, it could be newspapers, academic prose, they will say, do not use generic he. It is sexist. You should use he or she or alternate using he in one paragraph or she in another or rewrite the whole sentence so that either it's plural or you don't need a pronoun at all. And when I went in and started to look at usage, you see he or she taking off in written usage. Now, I myself am a big fan of singular they as a generic. So I think we should be able to write a sentence like, a professor should learn their students' names mm -hmm. because this is actually what most of us say. And there are a good number of studies out there that show that in terms of spoken usage, most of us use singular they in these kinds of constructions. So I could even say something like I was talking to a friend of mine and they said, it's a terrible movie. So I was talking to a friend of mine and they said, they is clearly singular in that sentence. And it just means that I don't want to tell you the gender of my friend. It's not relevant, whatever the case may be. And I think most of us would hear that sentence and just keep going. We wouldn't even notice that the day had happened. 
English speakers have been using singular they for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I and others have shown Shakespeare uses it, Jane Austen uses it. You can find it all over the history of English. But for a long time, prescriptive style guides have told us not to use singular they. I use it in my own writing. I use it in the book. I often footnote it the first time I use it so that I don't get judged for quote unquote, not knowing any better. Mm. Uh, so I will footnote it and say, I'm using singular they as my preferred generic pronoun and I explain why. But I'm really hopeful that in my lifetime that will start to get accepted by style guides so that we can write the way we speak in terms of that pronoun. Mm. So this kind of non-sexist language reform is not only about pronouns, right? That's right. So it's also been about what people call the man words with the M-A-N suffix. So words like fireman, policeman, chairman. And these have been the target of non-sexist language reform as well. When I went in, I used databases like the Corpus of Contemporary American English to look at what speakers and writers are actually doing. And I was struck by the ways in which the non-sexist alternative have infiltrated use and not just written use. So when you take a word like police officer, which has been, as far as I can tell, the consensus choice about how we're going to make that term generic. People tried policewoman and so you could have policemen and policewoman. That didn't go over so well. We've chosen police officer there. It has become the most popular use, not only in writing, but also in speech. The same is true for firefighter, which seems to be our choice as a generic for that. And in terms of chairman, I think people tried out chairperson, which didn't sound great. The person words have not done very well in terms of the reform efforts. And what we've done, at least in the States, is to go with chair. So in my department, I will say I had a meeting with the chair yesterday, which I know can sound a little funny because it's may sound like I'm talking to a furniture, but in fact, that has become completely standard use in the academy and outside the academy in terms of the way that we've created a generic form for a person in that position. So what is it about non-sexist language reform that's made it so successful as opposed to some more traditional institutionalized attempts to reform the language? I think that's exactly the right question and one I've been thinking a lot about. And I don't know that I can fully answer it. But it does seem like what's really important here is that you have a linguistic effort to change the language that is aligning with a social and political movement. Um, and that with that alignment, you can get the energy behind the language reform, that it's clear what's at stake. And what's at stake is also attempts to create a more equal system beyond language. So when those forces align, I think you have a better shot at language reform. Following on from that, reappropriation is something you've already mentioned. Reappropriation has a whole chapter of the book devoted to it. What do you think is the generalization behind reappropriation? Can any word be reappropriated or are there words that are just sort of too far gone? I don't know if I know the answer to that, but I certainly, what I have been thinking about is the power of grassroots movements or movements by social groups that take back a word used to refer to that group and the power of those movements. And one of the things that had me thinking about this is that when I was looking at standard textbooks about linguistics, every once in a while, you will see a reference to, for example, 
the word gay and the semantic changes that have happened to gay in the second half of the 20th century into the 21st, which is that the word has gone from meaning happy to being a negative term used to refer to the homosexual community to being a term that has been reappropriated and is now the term of choice by the gay community. And so in the U.S. at this point, people will have debates about gay marriage, and that's seen as a neutral term. Now, this will show up in a discussion of semantics or some such thing without a lot of attention to the social movement behind that. And as a historian of the language, I thought, we need to be paying attention to these kinds of efforts that actually are changing the language. They're changing what words mean. And with a word like gay or now with a word like queer, you're seeing a group's efforts to take that word and use it as a term of self-reference and put it out there as a preferred term that people outside the community would use to refer to the community has had real effects. And I think a part of the reason for that is that fundamentally this is about respect. And it is about respect when a group chooses a term and says, this is the term we would like to be called. To use that term is to show respect for that group's preferences. So I know you'll hear arguments that you're quote unquote, just changing language, or these are euphemisms, quote unquote, for groups. But I think it's a much more fundamental question, which is when a group of people say, this is important to us, and this is the term that we prefer, for other speakers to respect that preference is to respect a group of people. But some terms are still used by groups without them necessarily wanting others outside the group to use it, right? Well, that's right. And there's often some confusion as this is going on. So I think right now, I was actually talking with students about this the other day, that with the word queer, there's still some confusion about whether that's an in-group term for people in the queer community, that's a term of self-reference, but should not be used by people outside the queer community, or whether it's a term that can be used by people outside the community for the community. And then you have what I think is the most explosive word in American English, which I will refer to as the N-word, and the reappropriation of that word, usually with a final A as opposed to a final E-R, has been enormously controversial. There are members of the African American community who will use that word as a term of address for other speakers in the community and who've taken that term back and said, this term will do less harm if we take it back and try to use it in a positive way. There are members of the African-American community who have said that word cannot be reappropriated. It is too powerful. It is too harmful. It should not be reappropriated. Um, so you're seeing some prescriptivism around that and debate about that. But certainly right now, as that term has been reappropriated, it is only reappropriated by the African-American community for use within the community for speakers who choose to use it. It is still an explosive, discriminatory, harmful word when used by members outside the community. Earlier on, you mentioned that in the history of the language, for instance, when discussing semantic change, the semantic change in the connotations of a word are often discussed without the context of the social movement and the prescriptivism that surrounds it. Do you think it's fair to say that linguists haven't always taken prescriptivism into account enough in the writing of the history of English? I do think that's fair to say, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to put this book out there. And I titled it, I thought a lot about the title, 
so it's fixing English and the subtitle is prescriptivism and language history. And I use the word history as opposed to change to say, for those of us who are telling language history, we need to really think more seriously about prescriptivism, both because these are some of the most important conversations that are going on around language. So you, I think about the debates about prescriptivism that are the debates about reappropriation that are happening all around us right now and have been happening throughout the 20th century. And I say, these are really important to understanding language use, to understand the ways in which particular terms are socially loaded, are being debated outside of linguistic circles. If you want to understand what's happening in the language, you have to pay attention to those debates. The other part of thinking about language history for me is thinking about the relationship of the spoken and the written language. And this is where I identify as a historian of the English language. I work in an English department. Linguists will, you know, and for lots of good reasons, talk about the spoken language as primary. And that when we're talking about language change, we're talking about change in the spoken language. And then the written language is sort of lagging behind and eventually it'll pick up what's happened in the spoken language. As a historian of the language, I think when we're telling history, we need to be telling the history of the spoken language, the history of the written language, and the history of the relationship between those two things. That we see those get closer together and further apart over the history of English. And prescriptivism is one of the ways we can understand the relationship between those two things. So just to give one small example, the history of the word hopefully. And um, there's been some prescriptivism about the word hopefully starting in the 1960s. Early in the 20th century, speakers started to use hopefully to mean I hope or it is hoped. So, you know, hopefully it won't rain tomorrow. And this started happening in the beginning of the 20th century. It went on for three or four decades without people really noticing that this is what speakers had decided to do. And then in the 1960s, some prescriptive style guide writers, grammarians, noticed, and they decided they didn't like that use uh, and told, well, really speakers and writers to stop that and that hopefully should be used to mean full of hope, as in, I looked at her hopefully because I thought she was going to say something fun and exciting. And so we shouldn't use it to me, and I hope that. I looked at the Time Magazine corpus. So there are these databases that are available online for free that Mark Davies at Brigham Young University has put online for all of us. And one is the Time Magazine corpus from 1923 through the beginning of the 21st century. And if you look at that, you see hopefully on the rise until the 1960s, and then suddenly it just falls out of Time magazine. And I think this, what this shows is that the editors, you know, who were following prescriptive rules saw that now we weren't supposed to use hopefully that way. And so they were editing it out of prose. Now we've all continued to say this completely happily <laughs> to me and I hope, or it is hope. But what we see starting the 1960s, through the beginning of the 21st century is a separation between the written and the spoken on that. We say it, but we know we're not supposed to write it or it gets edited out of written language. Um, and that's just a small example, but it's one of the ways that we see how prescriptivism can affect the language. And one of the effects it can have is to create distinctions between what we will say and what we will write in formal prose. 
Histories of a language often contain a dichotomy between internal and external factors, or the internal history and the external history of a language. Do you think that dichotomy is right, or do you think it's enough? I think it's complicated when you try to distinguish what would count as an internal and an external factor. When you think about language and language history as the history of the speakers of the language, what is internal to a language and what is external to a language gets, I think, harder to distinguish. And I found myself thinking a lot about when speakers come into contact with other speakers, uh, so what we call language contact, we know that that has effects on usage, on language history. And I was trying to think about what does it mean for speakers to be coming into contact with prescriptivism? And that in today's day and age, a lot of us come into contact with prescriptivism all the time. Certainly, if you're in school, you're coming into contact with it uh, in English classes and other places. But for everybody who's on a computer, if you're in a Word document, you're encountering prescriptivism in the form of red and green squiggly lines that are telling you if you're using spelling and grammar correctly. So certainly, you know, it's going to vary for people how much contact they're having with prescriptivism, but it's certainly out there. And now that it's on word processing programs, I think, again, we need to take it very seriously in terms of its effects on the history of English. So let's talk about those red and green squiggly lines, because one of the things that you state in the book that, again, might surprise some people, is that the most ubiquitous prescriptive grammatical force in the world is not a grammarian or a usage book, but rather the Microsoft Word grammar checker. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Well, this was one of those realizations I had when I was started to take prescriptivism seriously. And one of the questions people will very fairly ask is, well, just how much effect is any grammar book going to have? And I think that's a completely legitimate question. Uh, so we can think about something like Lynn Truss's book, Eat, Shoots, and Leaves, which sold millions and millions of copies. And does that actually affect how people use the language? Well, we don't completely know the answer to that. We don't know how many people actually read the book who bought the book. And even the people who read the book, whether it actually affected their usage. Now, one thing I would say is... I think just the presence of the book and the fact that people bought millions of copies has some effect because one of the things it does is create language anxiety to quote a wonderful title. It's a book by Tim Mahan, his book called Language Anxiety, which is a history of people feeling anxious about language use and widespread prescriptivism makes people feel anxious. Like I'm not getting this right, which can lead to people doing things like overusing whom because they have a sense that if they want to use who they're probably wrong. And so they use whom if they're trying to sound more formal. But in any case, I was thinking about, okay, how much effect does any book have? And then I thought, well, now, wait a minute. Most of my students, in fact, don't use style guides. If they're getting advice about grammar, it's coming from Microsoft Word, and it's coming from the green squiggly lines that are showing up. Uh, Some of them turn it off. Some of them don't. But so then I said, I wonder where those rules come from. And I started looking seriously at the rules in the grammar checker and discovered that it's really a mixture um, from what I can tell and from a conversation I had with someone at Microsoft. It doesn't rely on any one grammar or any one style guide. 
And there are some rules in there that I think some style guides wouldn't even endorse. So, for example, as many people will know, if they have been in a Word document and have the grammar checker on, it will underline, if you use and or but at the beginning of a sentence, it will put a little green squiggly line under that and say that that is not usage that it likes. Now, if you look in style guides on that, what you will find is people will say, there is this myth out there that you can't start a sentence with and or but, but it is a myth perpetuated by English teachers. And now I want to add, and by the Microsoft Grammar Checker, which is out there telling us, don't do this. It's not good style, but not on especially good grounds is it telling us that. But I think most people, when the green squiggly line shows up, think, well, then I should follow it and they'll take out the sentence initial and or the sentence initial but. Another thing that makes this grammar checker quite special is that its recommendations are often stated in quite black and white terms, right? Yeah, so what I I would love to see would be a linguistically informed grammar checker. I think this would be one of the neatest things if we could do it, which would be there are lots of reasons for people to know prescriptive rules. And I think that one thing that can happen is that people hear linguists talking, including me, Uh, And we talk in more descriptive ways and they say, you all just don't get it. You think we should be able to, you know, you're saying people should write however they want and speak however they want. But the fact is there are going to be consequences if you don't use formal language and formal context. And of course, this is true. And most linguists, as far as I know, are not saying everybody should write however they want all the time. Mm, We're not advocating complete (laughs) linguistic anarchy. We're not. What we are saying is we should be much more critical about where standard English comes from, where prescriptivism comes from, so that people can use the language in linguistically informed ways. So as an English teacher myself, one of my jobs is to make sure that students control the rules of standard edited American English. Right? That's one of my jobs. And I'm not being responsible if I don't make sure that they know that some people will judge them if they use singular they. Or some people will judge them if they mix up who and who. Right? It's important that I get that out there so they know it. Now, I also feel that they should understand the rule behind it. So that if, for example, they would like to use a singular they and put a footnote there, they feel empowered to do that. So that we're not talking like this is right and this is wrong, but... This is a prescriptive rule about formal usage, and here are reasons to follow it and maybe some reasons not to follow it. So what I would love to see in the grammar checker would be that you would get, you know, whatever color line it is, and a little box would pop up that would explain in linguistically informed and nuanced ways what's going on with this rule. And we have some models for that. Uh, The American Heritage Dictionary, which has a usage panel and... To be upfront about it, I should say I'm on the usage panel for them. There are about 200 people on it. And we get a ballot every year that says, you know, is it acceptable to say advocate for something as well as advocate something, for example. Mm -hmm. And then when you look in the dictionary, there'll be a usage note that says X percent of the usage panel says this is acceptable. And this allows users to make informed decisions. Like if I use this, there are some people who are going to think it's wrong. Some people are going to think it's okay. Something like hopefully, right? Are people going to judge me if I use this in written language? And I would love to have those kinds of boxes pop up where you're getting grammatical rules, punctuation rules, that kind of thing explained so people can make choices and say, yeah, I want to use that anyway, or no, this feels more formal. I'm not going to use that. 
And that would be very useful also for second language learners of English to have a resource like that at their fingertips. Well, I think that's right. And I've been thinking about it because one of the things that linguists worry about, and I worry about it, is that we're asking people to think differently about language variation and language change. And people make a lot of judgments based on language variation and say, you know, these people, it's not that people are speaking non-standard English, but somehow they're speaking broken English or something like that. And linguists would say, that's not true. That's not linguistically informed. It's not accurate. Or they see language change as language decay, and they say, you know, young people are ruining the language. And linguists are also trying to say, nobody's ruining the language, it's going to be okay. But we've had trouble getting our message out there. And linguists worry that people aren't listening to us, they're not getting the message. Um, I think that's a fair concern. I think we as linguists need to think about ways that we can get the message out there, um, and so I think about something like the grammar checker, which is everywhere, and think what a powerful thing if you could get some more descriptive approaches that, again, are, are taking prescriptive rules seriously, but thinking about them critically, and get that out there as a way for people to think about language. So that public conversation about prescriptivism, it's something you mentioned, it's far from over, right? I don't think it is over. Um, I... Do you think it'll ever be over? <laughs> I'm very cautious about making predictions about the future of English or of language. I think part of being a historian is that you see that the predictions people have made in the past really tend not to be true, so I'm careful about what I say. But David Crystal, who is just a terrific linguist, I have so much respect for all of his work, has very optimistically said that he thinks we're coming out of the prescriptive era. And I wish that I could be as optimistic as he is about that. I don't see it yet. When I talk with students, they're very embedded in prescriptive discourses. Even when they don't learn grammar in school, they still have this strong sense that there are right ways and wrong ways to talk. They've come into contact with grammar checkers. So you see something like Lynn Truss's book selling millions and millions of copies, and frankly, we as linguists are not writing books that are selling millions and millions of copies. So I don't think we're out of the prescriptive era yet. One of the things I was uh, wondering about when I saw this title was whether anyone was going to buy it, thinking that it was going to be another Lynn Truss. <laughs> right? And then uh, maybe they would sort of get educated a little bit, which would be nice. But th that's a rather crude way of putting it. What I really mean to say is, what do you think academic linguists should be doing in order to play their part in this public conversation? What's the best thing? What's the the easiest and most practical thing we can do? I appreciate the question. Uh, we actually did a panel at the Linguistic Society of America, American Dialect Society meeting last year. Ben Zimmer and I <clears throat> talked about some of what we've been trying to do. So Ben Zimmer has been writing columns for the Boston Globe, now the Wall Street Journal. He's out there talking about language to the public, and it's great. And I have been trying to do some. I have a little radio show. It's three minutes long on uh, the national public radio station in southeastern Michigan called Michigan Radio. I think one thing is we need to learn how to talk in short, accessible, you know, the sort of soundbite way, which means that we have to be willing to sacrifice a little bit of the nuance to go for the bigger message. And I understand, I mean, as an academic, that it hurts me sometimes to lose some of the nuance. But in terms of just opening the door, I think we need to think about 
how to get the message out there in ways that are accessible, in ways that are friendly. And this actually really relates to the book. I think telling people who, almost all of us who've been in schooling, certainly in the U.S., have been schooled in fairly prescriptive ways to think about grammar. And to just tell people that's wrong or you're being silly does not make people very open to listening to you. So Mm. to take the line where we sort of dismiss this and say all of that is wrong and you should think about it in some other way, I think actually doesn't help people listen to us because they've had a lot of teachers who they love and respect and parents and other people tell them that this is a good way to think about language. And why should they believe me, one little linguist who they've never met, as opposed to everything they've grown up with? So I think one of the things is to actually take prescriptivism seriously to recognize, again, its merits in terms of, yes, there are more formal ways, and this can create formal prose, sometimes very aesthetically pleasing prose in some contexts, but there's also lots of pleasing prose that does not follow these rules. So I think that's part of it, is recognizing where people are coming from and trying to meet people a little more halfway than we sometimes are. I think one of the other messages, we have to just be willing to say it a thousand times and then a thousand more times. Uh, John Rickford, who's a linguist at Stanford, was, was on a panel years ago where he made the wonderful analogy. He said, any advertiser would laugh at linguists because at some level, what we're saying is, I told you once, why didn't you listen? And <laughs> any advertiser would say, Nobody listens if you only say it once. You have to bombard people a thousand times before you even have any hope that they might remember anything of what you're saying. And I think we need to think about that as well as we think about trying to get our message out there. Thank you. Coming back to your work on the usage panel, that relates to quite an old theme in the history of English, the discussion of whether or not words are somehow real words or not. What is it that makes a word a real word? Well, it depends who you're asking about what makes a word real. I think when I talk with most people and they will say that's not a real word or is that a real word, what they really mean is, is that word in a standard dictionary? Although what they'll say is, or if they were to say it, they would say, is that word in the dictionary? And I'm very interested in the phrase, the dictionary, because... The dictionary. Right. I mean, it assumes all dictionaries are exactly the same, and there is this thing out there called the dictionary that nobody wrote. It just appeared. And actually, this week in my undergraduate course, we've been talking a lot about dictionaries. And for most of the students in there, it's the first time that they were asked to look who edited that dictionary. Do you agree with some of the choices in the dictionary? Do you agree with the usage labels? Um, Then, of course, there are multiple publishers, and it depends what year a dictionary was published. So I think many people mean, has that been accepted into a dictionary? And I find people are very interested to know, how does a word actually get into a dictionary? How does that process happen? And what's interesting is that, of course, if you talk with dictionary editors, they will say, what we're trying to do is keep up with all of you that you're changing the language, you're changing what words mean, we're watching you, and we're just trying to keep up. And that dictionary editors recognize they'll always be a little behind because they're just trying to track. And that they will describe their projects as primarily descriptive projects where they're trying to say what words mean in terms of how we use them. Now, I think many people go to dictionaries as prescriptive resources to say, what should this word mean? 
And American Heritage tried to hit a little bit of a middle ground there. They were responding, at least to some extent, to the controversy over Webster's Third New International in the early 1960s, which was a very descriptive dictionary, took out a lot of the usage labels. And American Heritage created this usage panel where you would get opinions about the acceptability of particular usage, points of usage, as a way that when users of a dictionary were going to an entry, they could see the way people are using it, but they could also see, is this a contested point of usage? Are there different opinions about this usage? As a way to find kind of a compromise position between being descriptive and giving people information about attitudes, prescriptive attitudes that are out there. Could you tell us a little more about the Webster's Third edition? Because there were some interesting reactions to that, weren't there? I think interesting is a nice euphemism there. Uh, there were very fierce reactions to Webster's Third, uh, where people, including in the New York Times, uh, were saying that the editor and the dictionary had was not doing its job because it was so descriptive. I would recommend to everyone the, the book by David Skinner, The Story of Ain't, which came out in 2012. It's a wonderful recounting of the story of Webster's Third and the reception of Webster's Third. But for people who think about dictionaries as these sort of tame, generic resources to learn about the controversy that often surfaces around dictionaries, these dictionary wars that we've had in the past, I think can be surprising. But I'm also struck by how often dictionaries are in the news, really, you know, when the Oxford English Dictionary puts in LOL or BFF or something like that, or the Scrabble Dictionary includes new words, this makes headlines in newspapers. People are actually very interested in dictionaries and this idea of what gets a word into a dictionary because then somehow it seems more real. But of course, as a linguist, I would say a word is real when we're using it. And it's real if I use it and other people know what I mean, then a word is functioning as a word, which is it's communicating meaning. And so that word is real. Thank you. Okay, well, we're almost out of time. So for now, I'm just going to say thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great conversation. Thanks. This was really fun. You've been listening to New Books in Language, where I've been talking to Anne Curzon of the University of Michigan about prescriptivism and language history. This is George Walton saying thank you very much for listening.